Bye, good morning, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and not too long ago, the Tolkien Society had a seminar in 2021, that is, if you're watching this way later, um, and the seminar got a lot of attention because the seminar was about diversity in Tolkien, and there was a lot of people criticizing it before it happened because of accusations that it was just going to be a woke mess, then there was a lot of people defending it because... Well, I mean, people were going to defend it. Um, so the Tolkien Society seminar happened, and then we had the actual talks released on YouTube, or most of them. Several of them are, the videos are deleted. I don't know why. Uh, in fact, one of them that was deleted was interesting because it was not even, the title I don't think was correct. The title was about pardoning Saruman and the queer in Lord of the Rings, which didn't read like the description of the article at all, which looked like it had way more to do with comparing Manwe to some African deity or other. So I don't know what happened there. I would have actually been interested in hearing the talk on comparing Manwe to an African deity because that could have been a really interesting point of comparison, especially since Tolkien did actually spend the first few years of his life in South Africa. I doubt that had any real connection, but, you know, who knows. At any rate, now that the Tolkien seminar... Uh, society seminar has actually been made public for the most part. I decided to watch a couple of the videos and get an idea of whether it was really worth all the hullabaloo. And the answer is probably yes and no. But what I'm going to do in this particular video is not talk about the politics or anything like that. I'm just going to take one of the videos that I watched and I'm going to give my academic response to it, basically. And so I'm going to leave out all the politics. Politics is something I really try to avoid on this channel. I don't like getting into politics because to me that just ruins Tolkien. I mean, once you start going down that road, it just messes everything up. Just leave the politics out of it, let the story be what it is, and let everybody be happy. But the question really comes down to what is the interpretation of the story? And this becomes really relevant because a lot of the interpretations here take the root of the death of the author approach, which I've already done a video recently on death of the author versus authorial intent, and I came down on the authorial intent side. And this is why this kind of distinction becomes relevant, because if you stick with the intent view, you get you know, somewhat more limited possible interpretations of what a story is about or contains. Whereas if you take the death of the author approach, you can find more or less anything you want in a story. And that's kind of where this one piece goes. The piece that I'm going to be addressing specifically is one, I may botch the title a little bit, it's Gondor in Transition, Transgender Realities in the Lord of the Rings, or something like that. And I'm going to give an idea of what it's about and respond to it as briefly as I can. But it, it goes into a lot of stuff, and so there's going to be a lot to it. Hopefully this video won't be too long. But I'm just going to give it as an example of what kinds of things went on with this Tolkien Society seminar, explain why I think they show the weakness of the death of the author approach, and how I think they're being a little inconsistent with it as well. But again, I'm going to stay away from the politics. I'm not bashing this paper because it addresses transgender issues. I think those aren't in the story and I'm going to show why I think they're not in the story, but I'm not bashing it just because that's what their view is. I should also mention there are several papers that were given at this seminar 
that didn't appear particularly woke at all. For example, there was one about uh, issues of caste in Chinese, specifically, translations of The Lord of the Rings. And I don't know anything about that one. I haven't watched it, but I could see how that could be an issue because China, being run by a communist mu- uh, regime, probably has a fairly significant hand in whatever translations of works come over and making sure that it doesn't, you know, go against the political grain that they want it to go against. I mean, the Chinese regime is not exactly a free speech friendly regime. So I could imagine why there might be really interesting, probably bad, issues that come up in Chinese translations. So, I mean, there are topics that are addressed in this seminar that might have been very interesting. I already mentioned the Manwei paper as well, assuming the description was correct versus the title. That's kind of an open question because, like I said, that's one of the ones that was deleted, so I couldn't watch it, which kind of disappointed me, actually. I was interested in that. But that being said... Now I'm going to look at this one particular video, and I'll link to the playlist. You can find the entire playlist on YouTube of the ones that are still there. I'm going to link to the Tolkien Society website where they have the abstracts of all the articles that were presented, and that'll show you the one, the abstract for the article that was the one that I mentioned about Saruman being deleted. Um, So you'll have access to both the videos themselves and the descriptions of the ones that aren't up in video form, So you can do your own thing. So that said, let's take a look at this particular article. So first off, the first part of the video or talk, paper, article, I keep using different words, but I'm trying to say the same thing. Um, The author basically goes with the, we shouldn't care what Tolkien said uh, or thought or intended, really, is what, what it comes down to. And... The reasons given to me are not all that convincing. One of them was, you know, nobody really knows what Tolkien intended, and so we're always just guessing. Well, okay, sure, but there's enough material there that we can get a pretty decent idea of what he intended. Uh, Another reason was, you know, the story is out there. It can be read, you know, by anybody, and we all engage with the text. It's like, okay, fine, but again, it's like my approach to that issue is intent matters because a story like anything else is just a form of communication and the communication is determined by the intent of the communicator. You know, I just, I didn't find that argument, any of the arguments raised basically very convincing, but that's the approach they're going with. So we have to look at their arguments through that lens, at least to be as fair as possible. The author then gets into this idea that uh, there's these transgender issues in you know, like the Lord of the Rings as a whole, but more specifically looking at Gondor and raises the issue of the eucatastrophe as a sign of transgender realities, which the reasoning given is basically that the eucatastrophe is a, it gives the idea of the the tension between beginning and end and there's, you know, the the hope and despair, a lot of different tensions involved in eucatastrophe, and this is supposed to be a sign of transgender realities, according to this author. And I think at best, that under, that overstates the case. It's like, you might be able to see where those kinds of tensions might be in some way parallel to a transgender person, but that doesn't make eucatastrophe a sign of you know, transgender realities, that's that's saying too much because the whole point of a sign is that it signifies, it points to something. 
Tolkien gave us pretty much a very clear idea of what he meant by eucatastrophe, and for him it represented the in the intervention of divine grace into a situation and something that's not to be counted on ever to happen again. And it, the whole description of this comes from his uh, essay on fairy stories. And he goes into a pretty good bit of detail. So to say that it's a sign of, like I said, is overstating the case. I don't think there's any real way that you can argue that that's a sign of. You can argue that there's some parallels there with whatever transgender people experience, and I'm not claiming to be an expert on that, but that, again, is just saying that there's you can draw a parallel there. And, okay, fine, you can draw parallels everywhere, but that's not the same as saying that it's a sign of. Next, she breaks down Gondor's history into a bunch of different sections, and basically it's like originally it was a, basically a colony, and then it was part of the United Kingdom, and then it was part of a divided kingdom, and then it was a the sole surviving half of a divided kingdom, and then it was a kingdom under attack, and then it was a kingdom under without a king, a kingdom without a king, a kingdom without a king under attack, a kingdom without a king under seemingly insurmountable attack. Anyway, there's a bunch of different stages, and to me, this part was kind of weak because A, it seems to draw a lot of arbitrary distinctions. Like, the distinction between a kingdom without a king under attack and the kingdom without a king under seemingly insurmountable attack that, I mean, that's kind of a distinction there, but not really a meaningful one. And, and I'll, the reason why I say it's not meaningful is because what she ends up doing with this list is saying that if you look at Gondor, we tend to think of it as being associated with kingship, but in fact, most of its, peer, most of its categories of history fall into when the stewards were ruling. And so why that matters between a king... A kingdom without a king under attack or under in seemingly insurmountable attack, I don't see why that distinction is terribly relevant for what we're talking about. Furthermore, when she highlights the sections that she says are about, you know, the the rule of the stewards, she actually highlights too many of them because she highlights, I want to say it was the the remaining half of a divided kingdom and then even one more, I think. She she highlights like five sections, but really there's only about three sections that should have been highlighted as being under the rule of the stewards. The rule of the stewards was only about 500 years or maybe maybe a little more than that. I don't remember exactly the timeline. But, you know, out of a 3,000-year history, it was a relatively brief period. So she's getting facts wrong at a very basic level and also just making arbitrary distinctions to make her case stronger, in my opinion. You know, we could argue about that a little bit, I guess, but again, it just seems like her arguments are trying to force things in that really aren't there. She then starts getting into characters specifically, and she focuses a lot of attention on Denethor, Fendulas, and Faramir. Fendulas is Denethor's uh, wife and the mother of Faramir and Boromir. Fendulas died relatively young, and she was probably not as long-lived as Denethor to begin with, so Fenduelas has been off the pages of history for quite a long time, and the author uses this to basically argue that, you know, she's dispossessed of her political identity and her personal identity. Or rather, she's, you know, dispossessed of a personal identity outside of a political context. And she says that this is also a type of transgender reality. And here again, it's like, I could understand how maybe you can draw that parallel, 
but really all that's happening is Fendulos has been dead for a long time and she's just not part of the story and why would we work overtime to give her a huge amount of a personal identity when she's been dead for years like the main reason she comes up in the story is that Faramir takes a mantle and that word will become important in a minute which was made for Fendulos and covers Eowyn with it in the scene where he eventually gets Eowyn to come around and fall in love with him and all that so that's really the only reason that Fendulos even comes up in the story so it's it seems just putting way too much weight on this one character to make her be very significant for much of anything I mean in any story with the sweep and scope that Lord of the Rings has, you're going to have small minor characters and people who get referred to but are never characters in the story itself who are just barely there. And to try to put a lot of weight on those to make any kind of point seems to me to just be overreaching in the extreme. Next, she argues that through Faramir's eyes in the scene where he puts the mantle on Eowyn, we are invited to see Fendulas' history as basically parallel to Gondor's own history. And I think what she's getting at, although she doesn't explicitly say it, is that Fendulas kind of dies young and leaves behind, you know, her sons. Kind of like Gondor's kingship dies out and leaves behind stewards. I think that's kind of the parallel she's trying to draw there. Um, which, okay, I mean, and of course there's Faramir's own views with regard to Gondor as this thing that's lost its glory over time and you know, there's some of that in there, and I can kind of see that maybe working, and so I don't have a problem with it specifically, but then she also goes on to say that Faramir is connecting Eowyn to Fendulas's political identity, but we just got through hearing that Fendulas was disconnected from her political identity, so I'm not sure which it is, and I should mention, by the way, that this this paper that was presented was part of a larger thing that she is working on so maybe she connects more of the dots in the larger work that she's doing but wasn't all presented at the Tolkien Society seminar but I have to work with what I have so for purposes of addressing this I have to go with what she gives us which is in this case nothing I have no way to connect these dots and it seems like a contradiction to say on the one hand Fendulos is divorced from her political identity doesn't have a political identity but then Eowyn is connected or paralleled to Fendulas' political identity. It doesn't seem to me that it can be both. She then goes into a further discussion of the mantle, which I said would come up again, and how this is a thing that kind of both ties to and is disconnected from any kind of gendered traits because a mantle is just a uh, garment worn by somebody in authority and doesn't matter if it's a male or female who wears it and whatever. It's like okay, I've never heard that before. So I went and I looked up, and I looked online for various dictionaries, the etymology of the word mantle. I looked up a bunch of different stuff. And yes, there are definitions about mantles being, you know, a mantle of authority in usually a metaphorical sense. But by and large, a mantle just means a loose-fitting, sleeveless garment worn over other things like a cloak. And in fact, one definition I found said it was generally or especially worn by women. So actually, it kind of is gendered a little bit, if anything. So, right on, and she gives, by the way, no backup in her paper for this thing. Like I said, maybe in her 
more extended work that this is a part of. She goes into more detail and explains this, but in the talk she gave at the Tolkien Society seminar, none of this was explained. She just asserted it as bald fact, and I couldn't substantiate it with my own research. So take that as you will. Next, she goes into a comparison of various lines either about or by Eowyn and compares them with various lines by or about Denethor. And examples of this are, it's a bunch of parallel lines. And just to give you an idea of the kind of thing that we're talking about, Eowyn in her conversation with Aragorn says, all your words are but to say that I'm a woman's part is in the house and I should stay there. And then, you know, if, if the men don't come back, I have leave to be burned in it. And there's a kind of a parallel where it tells us that the stewards of Gondor were basically never allowed to leave the realm or engage in battle. And, you know, there's a perfectly good, like, rationale for that kind of thing because Gondor had already lost a king because he was foolhardy enough to go char uh, challenge the Witch King and get himself captured and killed because of the treachery of the Witch King. Like, who didn't see that coming? Um, and also, just as a general rule, whenever you have leaders in a battle... You want the leaders to be further back because they're the ones giving the commands and you don't want the leaders taken out. You even see this principle in movies like The Patriot with Mel Gibson where he basically tells everybody, shoot the officers first. If you can take out the command structure, the rest of the army doesn't even know what to do. Uh, so there's plenty of rational grounds for why that would be the case for Denethor. And Eowyn is you know, giving kind of a similar thing, saying that, She's accusing Aragorn of saying that, you know, your part is in the house and you shouldn't leave it. And when, you know, if the men get killed and then the bad guys come and burn down the house, you have the right to be burned in the house. That's not what Aragorn is saying, but that's what she is interpreting him as saying in her, you know, really messed up headspace. So there is parallel there, obviously, and she gives several other the other several other of these kinds of parallels some of which I think are weaker than others, but as a general rule, there's no real problem there. But she uses it to make the argument that, you know, Eowyn and Denethor being of opposite sexes, you know, Eowyn's a woman and Denethor's a man, you know, this is breaking down gendered norms because, you know, the steward is a man and he has some of the same restrictions and whatever, and Eowyn can wield a blade just like Denethor says, I can still wield a brand, and she's a woman, and, you know, that's not a gendered norm for women to wield swords. So, you know, I'm looking at all this, and I'm like, okay, well, as I said, there's perfectly good reasons why Denethor would not be allowed to leave the realm and get himself killed. We don't want to run out of leaders again. Uh, so that doesn't have anything to do with gendered norms. That's about his position, not his sex, gender, whatever we want to call it. Eowyn's ability to wield a blade... We all know in history there have been women who have fought in war, and there's no reason women can't wield swords. In fact, Eowyn kind of makes it clear, you know, the women of Rohan have been forced to fight before. So, you know, I think, again, this argument is putting too much weight on things that are said and trying to make them carry too much of an argument. It's not that there's no... It's not that Tolkien never allows for gender gendered roles to be you know, malleable or upset even in some ways, that is kind of Eowyn's position in the story. But to say that that implies anything for transgender reality, I don't see the connection. She then moves on to a discussion of some of the words that Tolkien devised for different things. 
And here again, she makes a basic, just factual error. She talks about the word erindur being the word for steward, and it being a word that basically means, like, friend of the king, but also, like, servant of the king. And she tries to compare this to Frodo and Sam, Sam being both servant and friend of Frodo. The problem is erindur is not a general word for steward. Erindur is the name of a steward. He's one of the stewards of Gondor. That's all he is. And yes, there is, the in the root words for the Elvish language, Indil is friend, Elindil, elf friend. And Ndur is properly more like a servant as opposed to a friend, but can apparently, and I don't know where she's getting this, uh, I think it was from one of the one of the very scholarly types of publications that puts out stuff from Tolkien's uh, linguistic work. Uh, but there's the idea that it also carries some degree of friendship with it as well, not just, not merely a master-servant relationship. And I'm perfectly happy to grant that. I don't know any better. But the fact remains, the word isn't applied to steward, and I just don't see, again, how any of this connects to there being a a non-binary or a transgender or anything like that, as if stewards who are servants of kings can't also be friends of kings in a way that doesn't bend male-female, you know, heterosexual relationship norms. Like, I mean, there's there's so many assumptions behind that argument that just aren't backed up by anything that she says. I just don't see how the argument flies. She then goes into an argument about Denethor being a lot like the Virgin Mary. And here again, the argument, she never really backs it up much. Um, but she draws the parallel as Denethor, you know, giving up his sons in the war against Sauron and comparing that to the Virgin Mary giving up her son Jesus for the salvation of the world. And she brings up an artwork created by, I don't remember who, which draws Denethor and Faramir in much the same kind of position as a lot of religious artwork about Mary holding Jesus after he's been crucified. And it's like, okay, somebody's interpretation in art isn't an argument, first of all. Second, her next argument is that, you know, the the kind of the person that we think we know as Denethor from you know, the text is actually not really who Denethor is. And to prove this, she gives a passage where Gandalf is explaining after the whole Palantir incident and Denethor burns himself to death that he thinks that, you know, he, he mentions that he suspected there was a Palantir and that probably Denethor had, you know, wisely foregone looking at it for a long time, but eventually did and finally fell and, you know, this whole passage. And then she highlights sections of it where, Gandalf is flat wrong, where the statements are at least disputable, and then places where he's right, and says Gandalf is only right 23% of the time. She never explains how this incorrect view of Denethor is relevant to her earlier point, and she also never actually gives us the sources for why anything Gandalf says was wrong. She says it comes from the Unfinished Tales, but she never quotes the Unfinished Tales and explains why any of this is proving that Gan Gandalf was wrong. But even if the Unfinished Tales did contradict something in The Lord of the Rings, the Unfinished Tales are just that. They're musings by Tolkien, which weren't necessarily finished, and therefore we don't necessarily have the right to take as canonical. Also, we have to remember, when Gandalf is saying all this stuff, 
he is necessarily speaking at the level of a surmise because he doesn't know the facts of what went down with Denethor. He's going on what he has and guessing at least some of it. We have good reason to think maybe that Gandalf's guesses are pretty good, but we're not supposed to necessarily take every detail he says as gospel because he doesn't know everything. I mean, that's not his role. But again, even to that extent, the Unfinished Tales are not a Trump text that allow us to say that, see, the Lord of the Rings is wrong, and Gandalf was wrong, and therefore, what? Okay, Gandalf was wrong. That proves nothing, as far as I know. She didn't, again, she didn't come back and support any of her earlier argument. She just made the argument that we get the idea of what Denethor is through Gandalf, who is clearly wrong. Even though she can't cite any sources that show why Gandalf is wrong, other than to just refer to the Unfinished Tales... And she never gives an argument for why her interpretation of Denethor is right. So, again, I just don't see how the argument flies. She kind of ends the more academic portion of her talk by saying that we should look for transgender realities in, and I'm going to have to refer to a list because there's a long one, states of process, confounding of dichotomies and binaries, death, misperception, identity without body, sites of power or trauma in the body or landscape, shifting in contradictory contexts, and the rejection of expected contexts. Why all of those things are specifically related to transgender realities, I don't know, and she doesn't explain. Identity without body is something that literally every Christian has believed, and every Hebrew has believed who is faithful to their religion since, you know, ever. Because they believe in an incorporeal God who has an identity without a body. This is... Like, a large chunk of humankind has always believed in spiritual, non-corporeal beings. And that's just one example. Another is the idea of death. Why should death be any kind of particular representation of transgender realities? People die. That's just a part of the world. I mean, so again, if she's only saying that we might find transgender realities in discussions of these things in stories, okay, I'm willing to admit that. But to say that those things in Tolkien's work are about those things, that's going too far. I mean, at least it's going too far until you've presented evidence, which you haven't. So again, I just don't see where this argument goes anywhere. It's just like so much of this paper is just assertion after assertion after assertion without any real argument or evidence behind it. But then she ends the talk with kind of a soapbox lecture on how there's a blindness in literary interpretation and the fandom by ignoring these particular readings of the text. And she's acting like, you know, these readings have always been there and we shouldn't, you know, dismiss them as being just reader response or whatever. And here's where I come back to what I said earlier about her not really being consistent with the whole death of the author approach. If the death of the author approach is the way to go, all interpretation is just reader response. There's nothing else. Because at the end of the day, what matters is what the reader takes out of the text, and that's a reader response. And she acts like this is, you know, some kind of a problem that, you know, the majoritarian view is dismissive of this minority view, but maybe it's worthy of being dismissed, because as I've shown here, and you can watch our video, and you can come up with your own, you know, conclusion on the topic. 
she hasn't given any real reason to buy into her conclusions. So, yeah, I can dismiss that. That's not me being mean or dismissive in a bad way. I'm dismissing it because there's nothing there to to really back up any claims. And similarly, to say that the readings were always there, well, only in the sense that any text is always there for somebody to come up with a reading, but until the first person came up with a transgender type of reading from the text, no, that reading wasn't there because it wasn't in the intent of the author, or if it was, the intent of the author doesn't matter, and so all that matters is what the reader comes up with, and so, okay. It's like, well, I mean, you can argue all day long that we shouldn't exclude other possible interpretations of the text just because they're, you know, a minority, and I'm all for that. I don't mind saying that, you know, just because a minority is a minority, that they're therefore wrong. I have a lot of minority views myself, but I think they're right. But that doesn't change the fact that you've got to back up your position with evidence and facts. And I don't think this paper does that. Like I said, she acknowledged that it was a smaller portion of a much bigger work that she's working on, and so maybe she's got something there. But to the extent that this was supposed to be an academic-style paper presented at a seminar, I don't think it does what it was claiming or trying to do. And this is why, you know, quite aside from the politics, why a lot of people have problems with these kinds of things with Tolkien. You know, when you try to read these kinds of things into Tolkien, that's exactly what you're doing. You're just reading it into it. And that's the impression I get from this and not just this one, but other videos that were published in relation to the seminar, is that they're just reading what they want into the text. And okay, if you want to read that into the text on your own time, that's fine, but don't pretend like you're doing something that's significant for anybody else. I mean, what you subjectively read into a text is your own subjective thing that has no real bearing on anybody else so why is it so important for you that everybody else knows that it's there? It's like what you personally get out of the text is what you personally get out of the text. When I share stuff about my theories on what Tolkien means or the significance of some of the stuff that he's saying, I'm doing it based on the fact that I think an objective, reasonable person looking at it can get the same thing out of it as me, not just, you know, this is what I think and... I don't care what anybody else thinks. I, to me, that's boring. You know, I can have all kinds of personal opinions. I like cookies and cream better than chocolate. So? I mean, that's really kind of beside the point. Public discourse shouldn't be about everybody just sharing their personal subjective opinions. That's dull, ultimately. We all have personal subjective opinions because we're all different, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But to make, to make out, like, your personal subjective opinion is really important. It needs a stage from which it can be espoused. Nah, I, I just can't get along with that. So that is my academic analysis of this paper. I just really don't think it ever made a significant amount of headway in making the argument it claims it is trying to make. So... Whether this applies to any of the other ones is an open question. Like I said, I've not watched them all. Uh, if anybody's interested, you know, if, if people are interested in my views on how these papers do in terms of 
what they say and whether they're, you know, got valid reasoning or whatever, I can do more of them because they're up there on YouTube for anybody to watch. Um, so if you're interested in that, let me know, but I'm not super interested in it myself because like I said, I think it's just a bunch of people just putting out their personal opinions and I just, I don't care. It's not something that I'm interested in learning everybody else's personal subjective opinion. I just don't think it's worth my time. But if everybody else wants it, who am I to say no to the audience? So anyway, that'll wrap this up. So hope you enjoyed that video. Hope you got at least some idea of what went on at the Tolkien Society seminar. Like I said, I'm trying to keep the politics out of it. So, you know, my views on all this are irrelevant. I'm only looking at it from the standpoint of the argument. But if you did find this worthwhile in terms of, you know, the kinds of papers being presented, whether they're worth considering, whether they're worth your time to watch them yourself, you know, please give it a like, share it around for anybody else who might be interested in that kind of thing. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. You can also find me on Odyssey and Rumble. Please subscribe to the channel and click the bell icon to get all the notifications. And you can support me over at Patreon. And, of course, I also have podcast versions of this as well. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.